0: Welcome to Confessing the Faith, a podcast devoted to discussions concerning Christian doctrine and the Christian life. My name is Mike Tesey, and I'm joined again today by Joe Annity. Hey, Joe. Hello, Mike.
1: It's good to be back with you, bud. Yeah, yeah.
0: Well, we're we're talking about the Lord's Supper today, um, and it's been kind of a, a nice recent... A topic and, and also transition for us as a church as we've moved to weekly observance and using wine, going back to wine instead of uh, grape juice. I mean, we offer both, but uh, well, that's going into more detail. But, anyways, um, I'm excited to keep talking about this topic, and um, obviously, you've had some discussions with various people from the church and about this topic. And that's kind of why we're doing this podcast today, right?
1: Yeah, I devoted two sermons to uh, the topic of the Lord's Supper. And looking back on it, I kind of wish I would have taken three. Um, I think if I were to do it over again, I would have voted a third sermon to the topic of fencing the table and how it is that we uh, are going to do that at Emmaus and to give explanation as to why um Didn't really see the need for it ahead of time, I guess. I just didn't anticipate some of the questions that were going to come our way. But um, I am thankful that we have people in the church who are willing to come up and say, what about this? And uh, this didn't seem clear or this bothered me. And it it has given uh, me and us, when I say us, I mean myself and the other elders, an opportunity to go back and to refine some things and to uh, tweak some things a bit for the sake of bringing greater clarity to uh, the way that we fence the table. Right, right.
0: Well, what does it mean to fence the table?
1: I guess I should define that, right? I'm using the terminology as if people talk that way. That's actually pastor talk, you know. um, It's theology talk. Uh, But fencing the table, uh, that that phrase, uh, refers to the practice of inviting people to the Lord's Supper uh, in such a way that it uh, makes the biblical meaning and significance of the supper clear. You know, so it's not just a let us partake, you know, and, and not not another word is said about it, but rather it is, uh, brothers and sisters, you are invited to the table, and here is what the Lord's Supper signifies, and therefore here is who it is for, and this is the way in which we should partake. And so, uh, you know, you get the imagery. It, it's it's a, a building a fence around the Lord's table uh, as a way of, really warning against the dangers of partaking of the supper in an unworthy uh, manner. That's right. that's really at the heart of this uh, this thing here. So, you know, in the moment I say that, I, I think I should also point out that on the one hand, I think it's very important that we do fence the table. This is not just a common meal, right? This isn't just us getting together to eat something. Right. Um, th- th- this is a sacred meal, therefore we do need to introduce it as such— uh, to put that constantly before uh, people's minds. Um, at the same time, I would guess that it is also possible. I know that it is possible to fence the table in an in- inappropriate way, mm-hmm. uh, to where the fence you build is much too high. You know, instead of a proper fence and a biblical fence, you have this um, th- this fortress wall that you have now erected. You know, so that it makes it almost impossible for anyone to approach. That would be uh, certainly problematic, right? Yeah. Yeah. Well, what biblical warrant is there for fencing the table? I would just point to that uh, well-known passage in First Corinthians eleven that I think a lot of churches traditionally read from uh, uh, right. whenever they introduce the supper or, or, or um, as they invite people to partake. You know, where Paul says, uh, "I have received from the Lord that which I am delivering to you that the night that Jesus on the night that He was betrayed, He took bread." Right. So that whole that familiar passage there, that whole context, um, it's really Paul fencing the table. You know, he first of all is rebuking the church at Corinth for the way that they were partaking of the Lord's Supper. They were treating it like a common meal. They were just eating and drinking in much the same way that they would in their houses, and they were even giving themselves to excess, uh, even uh, uh, getting drunk during the Lord's Supper, which, I mean, just goes to show you how how troubled that church in Corinth was, right? Uh, by the way, I think that uh, helps to make the case that indeed the early church was using wine and not Welch's grape juice, right? Uh, right? <laughs> they, they, they were struggling with drunkenness, and Paul's solution to the drunkenness wasn't say, well, let's use non-fermented grape juice instead. His solution was to rebuke them for it, to call them out on their sin. Uh, they were gathering together on the Lord's Day, and whenever they did, they were observing the supper. He's rebuking them for doing it in a bad way. And then at the end of that passage in 1 Corinthians chapter. 11, uh, the Apostle Paul fences the table. Uh, He warns uh, the church um, about partaking the Lord's Supper in, in an inappropriate way. So verse 27, for example, "...whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread." And drink of the cup for anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body, eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we might not be condemned along with the world. So what is the point? He's saying, come to the table. But then he fences it, doesn't he? He says that come in a worthy manner, come having judged yourself, come having discerned the body. Obviously, Paul's view of the Lord's Supper is that it's not just a memorial meal; it's not just a time for us to remember the death of Christ. It is that, but evidently, there's more going on than that because there are spiritual consequences, either for good or for ill. Uh, No pun intended. Some were ill, right, because of their uh, their hypocrisy. You know, their taking of the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner. So I think there's clear biblical warrant for this: that ministers ought to invite. Christians to the Lord's Supper, uh, they ought to compel them to come and to partake, but at the same time with a word of warning ahead of time. I think it's just a simple pastoral task, actually, to consistently call the congregation to um, to repentance mm-hmm. and to approach the Lord in a reverent way. Yeah, yeah, helps keep significance to the
0: Lord's Supper and helps us to um, just really actually take contemplation seriously for
1: yeah I, wonder, life, yeah, I wonder. I wonder if churches have really stopped fencing the table. I think we'll get to that a little bit later. But I know that there has been an ebb and flow in this regard throughout church history. Oh yeah, uh, where sometimes the church would make a practice of fencing the table; other times that practice would be uh, neglected. Um, but I think it's an important and biblical thing for us to do.
0: Yeah.
1: Well, when when should a person not partake? When should a person not partake of the Lord's Supper? Um, I would probably answer that question um, beginning with this statement. The goal is to have people partake, right? I could see this becoming a problem in in a church uh, to where the table is fenced. People are encouraged to look inward, to discern the body, to judge themselves. And I could imagine Uh, This culture growing within a church to where individuals start to judge themselves so severely that it's almost um, uh, something that is celebrated to not partake, right, to where you look, oh, my brother here has judged himself so thoroughly that he's letting the elements pass, or my sister, look at how holy she is because she is so um remorseful about her sin she she partakes only 10% of the time or something you know right. that's not the goal i think the goal is to have everyone who is in christ partake but to do so after examining yourself and doing something in response to that examination confessing sins to the lord uh for example go go to the lord in prayer and confess your sins to him or uh, going to a brother or sister whom you have offended, even during the service. I, I don't know if I've ever seen this happen. Maybe, well, I've done it actually because, you know, there are times where I'm sitting next to my wife, uh, you know. <laughs> I need to make a practice of going over and sitting next to the family. Actually, I usually stay up in the front uh, just for the sake of being close, uh, you know, to where I need to be to direct things. But there there, there was one time I can remember uh, to where I, I think Lindsay and I were having a rough morning together, you know, and I was rude to her. Um, and so I did slide over there and I said, will you forgive me? You know, here I am leading the Lord's Supper, and yet there was this unresolved thing between my wife and I, and, and I needed to go and slide next to her and and to repent, you know, before God, but also to to ask for her forgiveness. Um, So that's the goal. The goal is not to half of the time never to, to, to not partake, right. you know, that's not the issue. We want people to partake, but we're, we're calling people to repentance. Repent fully, thoroughly, and eat and drink, right. you know. And that should be a reminder that if you come and you confess your sins, he is faithful and just to forgive you of all your sins and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness, First John uh, 1, 9, right? Um, right. It, it's a picture of that. I've repented, and now I'm feasting upon Christ, you know, and continuing my walk with him
0: you've said this before in one of the moments that you fenced to the table in the past, but just saying how kind of combating that over overly humbleness, I guess, I don't know. You know what I mean? The overcompensated humbleness, I should say. I'm not sure how to say that, but by just saying, you know, by eating and drinking, you're also reminding yourself of that forgiveness and that you're receiving. So, you know, of course we're, you know, we're encouraging ourselves to, to repent, but also to remember that we have been
1: forgiven. Right. I think it is possible. The, the The table needs to be fenced, but it could be misunderstood. Sure. Um, maybe it would be my fault for not communicating it clearly, but I even think if it is communicated clearly, sometimes people might hear, my goodness, the goal or the standard is perfection then, huh? It's like, mm-hmm. no. <laughs> I, I mean, if I said this before, I've said this before, if the standard were perfection, then the trays would go out full and they would come back yeah. full. Yeah. Yep. Every Sunday, no. The the goal, the standard is an authentic walk before the Lord, a walk marked by repentant, authentic repentance before God, and uh, the unity which the Lord's Supper symbolizes also needs to be maintained so that there is division. Uh, that everything is done in one's power to to remedy that. I. I, I I can imagine a situation, though, where a brother or sister is so struggling with sin and just feels overrun by it and is having major troubles in, in the soul, you know, or if there's a major conflict that can't be resolved that morning. I could imagine a brother or sister allowing the elements to pass. My hope is that that would be rare,
0: mm-hmm.
1: you know. Um but, but it might – that situation might arise where upon examining oneself, the, the individual says, you know, what? I'm just living in sin right now, and it's not appropriate for me to partake. Again, I hope that individual then uh, later that day, you know, immediately after the service, it works to taking care of whatever the issue is, talks with a pastor, an elder, talks with a brother, or sister in Christ. but um, So I, I imagine that it would happen from time to time, but I hope it's rare. Um the other thing that needs to be said is that uh, obviously uh, uh, an individual should not partake if they are under church discipline um, to the point of excommunication, right? That's not a word we use very often in our circles, but it is a biblical concept, uh, you know, that um, if a person is at the end stages of church discipline and is not repentant, they are to be um Put out, excommunicated, so you could hear it, right? Excommunicated. We're talking about communion here, the Lord's Supper. To be excommunicated is to be barred from, from the table. Um, you know, may it never be. May we never have to do that. It is not our desire to excommunicate anyone or to take church discipline to that level, but it certainly is a biblical concept. You can read Matthew 18, the pattern that is presented there. Uh, that if a brother is in sin and other brother to go to him to confront him between he and him alone, um, if he doesn't listen, if there's no repentance, take another brother with you, right? And if still there is no repentance, it's the church is to be involved, the church uh, under the leadership of the pastor and elders, um, but the church in its entirety is to be involved. And if there still is no repentance, that individual is to be as a tax collector and sinner, right, uh, to the church. He's to be put out. 1 Corinthians uh, 5 also uh, speaks of, of, of this issue. Obviously, there were issues in Corinth, right? We keep coming back to this letter to this church. Um, but in 1 Corinthians 5, it begins with this word. It is actually reported that there is sexual, sexual immorality among you. And of a kind that is not even tolerated amongst pagans, for a man has his father's wife, and you are arrogant, ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this thing be removed from among you. So there was this situation where a member of the church was sleeping with his father's wife. So this must have been a stepmother, something like that. There's there's some some severe form of sexual immorality going on uh to the point where uh, Paul points out that this isn't even acceptable amongst pagans and it's in the church and here's what's worse you're all arrogant about it you're almost chuckling about this thing laughing about it as if it's okay you know shouldn't you be weeping instead uh what should be done well this individual should be removed from you that's excommunication right um, I see here uh, an instance where Paul just uh, lays out discipline in a very rapid um, sort of manner, right? The Matthew 18 pattern, I think in some circumstances would take weeks and months and sometimes months upon months, you know, to, yeah, to yeah. walk through. It seems this situation is so severe and it's so public and it's so well known that Paul just you know, uh, drops the verdict uh, almost instantly here. There is probably a history to it as well. Um, But but look at what he says in verse 9. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. Okay, so he's talking about a letter that he wrote to them before not to associate with sexually immoral people but here he clarifies. He's saying, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy or swindlers or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world. He says, I wasn't talking about not associating with um, non-Christians who are sexually immoral and greedy and swindlers and the rest. Uh, Where would you go? You'd have to leave the world. It's not what I was talking about, Paul says, but I am now writing to you to Uh, not associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, a reveler, a drunkard, or a swindler. Okay, Don't associate with those who call themselves Christians who are living an unrepentant lifestyle in this way. And then check this out. Not even to eat with such a one. Not even to eat with such a one is what Paul says. There's some debate as to whether verse 11 here, is referring only to the Lord's Supper, the sacred meal, communion? Or is it also referring to common meals, right? There are some who say, no, this is only a reference to the Lord's Supper. There are others who say this is a reference to not eating with such a one in regard to both the Lord's Supper and just regular meals. regular eating, you know, going out to Chipotle with someone or something like that in modern day terms, right? Um, I'm not going to settle that issue here. I tend more in the direction of this is referring to the Lord's Supper. Um, But the point I want to make for the sake of this conversation is that it definitely refers to the Lord's Supper, right? So the end stage of, of church discipline, again, may it never be, we're not looking to do this, but... Uh, God forbid if there were a situation where there is someone who is saying, I am a brother, I am a Christian, and yet they are living in unrepentant sin. The end stage of it is to say, you're not welcome to the table. Mm -hmm. You're not welcome to the table. Now think about what is symbolized there. If coming to the table and if partaking of the bread and the wine symbolizes one's union with Christ, if it symbolizes a fellowship bond, a communion bond, a covenantal bond, then being barred from the table symbolizes what? Lacking all of those things. There's no union with Christ. There's no fellowship bond. There's no communion bond. Now, it's not a judgment ultimately upon one's salvation. We can't judge the heart of man the way God can, of course. But it is a judgment, right? That, you know, brother, friend, you're saying you're a Christian, and yet you are living just such a sinful life the two things are not matching here and by all appearances there there is no fruit of repentance there is no fruit which would indicate that you are indeed a child of god there is only fruit which it would indicate to us otherwise and uh, paul is calling the church to um to judge in that matter um, so for those for those reasons i guess it may be that someone examines themselves and under certain circumstances said, I better," and says, I better pass today. Okay, I hope it's rare and under hopefully also the very rare circumstance that someone has been uh, disciplined to this furthest extent. By the way, this is not a podcast on church discipline, but I'm talking about church discipline, so I probably need to say it. The end goal of church discipline is what? It's it's Repentance. It's that the brother or sister's soul would be saved. It's that through the process of handing them over to Satan, as Paul puts it, right, for the destruction of the flesh, they would indeed be saved uh, as it pertains to the Day of Judgment. Right. So it's a very hopeful thing. It's a very loving thing. It's, brother, we're so concerned for you. We're not going to allow you to continue to live this hypocritical life in a way that is unchecked, Right. Yeah, it's important. Yeah. It's good. Well, how do we go about
0: fencing the table at Emmaus? And this has taken lots of refinement
1: over the last... uh couple of weeks yeah, only, really. Yeah. And again, I am so thankful for the comments of the people of Emmaus. So we are listening to you, um, you know, and, and taking uh, into consideration your thoughts. Um, we have made it a practice to put this statement that I'm about to read into the bulletin so that people can read it. Early on in the service, they'll hear, hear something like this from me uh, before we actually partake of the Lord's Supper, but but it's here in writing. Um, we've tried to make this statement very succinct. Um, we hope that it's clear. Uh, most of it has stayed the same from the moment we wrote it, but there have been a few tweaks that I'll point out in a minute. But, but let me just read it to, to you, okay? How does Emmaus fence the table? Well, well, here's the statement that will be in the bulletin this Sunday. Uh, Brothers and sisters, let us come to the table. So that says something, doesn't it? It's an invitation, first of all. Um, Let us come to the table with thankful and repentant hearts, remembering all that Christ has accomplished for us. It is a remembrance, isn't it? Uh, In his life, death, resurrection, and ascension to the Father. Uh, Let us come in faith so that we might feast upon Christ, not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. So it's more than just a remembrance. There is an actual feasting upon Christ that takes place, not in the Roman Catholic sense of transubstantiation, nor in, you know, in our view, nor the Lutheran sense of consubstantiation, but it, there is a, a real presence of Christ, a spiritual presence of Christ here in the supper. It's more than a memorial. Um, and then here, really, uh, the invitation gets specific. All are invited to partake so long as they are believing upon Christ, have been obedient in baptism, are a member in good standing, of this church or are visiting from another like minded congregation. If you are new to Emmaus but not yet a member, you are also invited to partake. We look forward to getting to know you in the weeks to come. Our concern is that it is those who have faith in Jesus who are living in a consistent in a way consistent with the faith who partake. And then there is this quote from 1 Corinthians 11, 27. Whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That's the statement as it stands right now. So what's the main part that's changed too in there? Well, in the original, here's what um, here's what it said. Uh, it's in the section on all in, are invited to partake so long as they are. Um, and then uh, originally one of the parts was, if you are new to Emmaus but not yet a member, we ask that you talk to an elder, pastor or elder, before you begin to partake. Right. What it says now is, if you are new to Emmaus but not yet a member, you are also invited to partake. We look forward to getting to know you in the weeks to come. So it's not real different, you know, substantially different, but it is also in some ways. Here's the way I would put it. At first, when it comes to those who are coming into into the church uh, for the first time who are new, they would have been greeted more with a red light, you know. We want to get to know you. We want to hear your testimony. We want to understand where you're coming from, right? And and what your intentions are here. So there is a desire to pastor people. That's the common thing between both statements, right? There's a desire to pastor people, to shepherd people, to to know people, and to be involved in people's lives, right? Uh, but the way it was originally stated, I will admit, it began with a red light saying, "Talk to us first, and then begin to partake if you are new, right. but not yet a member." And we've adjusted that to give a green light first, which is to say, go ahead, if you meet all of these other qualifications that we've set forth, partake of the supper, and we look forward to getting to know you in the weeks to come. Uh, we're very much concerned about pastoring the congregation. I know churches that that uh, go with the way it was originally stated. I think they're well-intended. I don't think it's wrong. I think it is perfectly legitimate for pastors Uh, to have such a concern for the flock that they are uh, saying, let's start with this, let's get to know one another, and then move on from there. I do think that's legitimate. Um, But it seems to me that after talking to some of our members and uh, after uh, wrestling with this, uh, with the other elders, uh, this second approach that we now have um, is better for us. Mm -hmm. To start with a green light and say, and we're a small church so it's not hard for us to start with the green light and to say you know after the service, tell us about yourself, brother, where are you coming from and, right. and what's your story? How'd you come to Christ and, and those sorts of things right
0: And it's still on then you know the individual to
1: to examine himself or herself and that's it. It, it does put um, the responsibility upon the individual um, to, to examine themselves. There's a delicate balance here because on the one hand I, w- I would say that the, the, the pastors, the elders of a church, do have the responsibility of overseeing this aspect of our worship. Absolutely. Right?
0: Yeah.
1: yeah. Um but at the same time individuals have the obligation to examine themselves. And so there is kind of a, a fine line there and a delicate balance. And that's and so, why it's that, especially with the new the new person giving that,
0: you know, that statement for the new person is helpful.
1: Yeah. So, so. thanks for your patience with that. Um and I'm sure we'll continue to tweak this a little bit. Um you know so so pray for wisdom there for for the elders of Emmaus that we would uh, look carefully at these things, but uh, this is where it stands as of today. Yeah.
0: Well, let's talk about the individual components of that statement. So um, starting off with the the beginning there, um, why is it necessary for us to be believing upon Christ?
1: There is a view out there which would say um, you know why does it really matter? Just let people partake. And what harm is done if someone does not have faith and yet they partake of the Lord's Supper? I think that's actually a very common view. Like, why do you need to say all this? Just welcome everybody. Give everybody the green light, right? I would say that's the predominant view today, at least in yeah. our, in our yeah. area. Um, I would respond to that by simply drawing your attention to what it is that the sacrament symbolizes. Again, It symbolizes the fact that we are eating of Christ, not carnally, but with the mouth of faith, that we are feasting upon him spiritually, that we are saying yes and amen to him, and we have made him Lord. You know, we we, we are receiving him. That's what it symbolizes. It also symbolizes our union with one another, that we are one together in Christ Jesus, right? And if the supper symbolizes those things and, and other things as well, then should that not correspond to the reality of things in the heart, uh, hearts of those who, who partake. Again, uh, like with baptism, the Lord's Supper, it, it's an external, visible manifestation of what is going on within human hearts, isn't it? Mm-hmm. So just like baptism symbolizes our union uh, with Christ through his death, burial, and resurrection, just as it symbolizes the fact that we've been washed by him as we have believed upon him, um, so too the Lord's Supper symbolizes these things. I, I would just ask this question would you be comfortable? If it is your view that non-believers should be invited to the table, is it also your view that non-believers should receive baptism? Now, maybe I'm really underestimating things here, but I would imagine that most Christians, in response to that question, would say, no, only those who believe should be baptized, um, unless you're a and then you believe your children should be too, but that's another issue for another time, right? But no, when it comes to adults at least, I think most Christians would say, no, it's only those who believe that should be... Why would a non-believer ever be given baptism? You know? I think at least that would be a common view in our time and in our location. Maybe not in church history, but anyways. Um, And so if that is true, if only believers should be baptized, then why why would we give the other sacrament um, to, to non-believers?
0: Right. Yeah. Well, that leads pretty good into the next part.
1: You know, why
0: why must we be baptized before partaking?
1: Yeah, we, we say um, uh, you're welcome uh, to partake uh, so long as you are believing upon Christ and have have been obedient in baptism. Um, so baptism is the sacrament which marks the beginning of the Christian life. It marks our entrance into the covenant community. It, it marks the start, uh, whereas the Lord's Supper marks the continuation. It's been said that baptism is a kind of I do, whereas the Lord's Supper is a kind of I continue or I remain. And I think that's a helpful way of thinking of it in, in terms of how these sacraments function and what they symbolize. You are not baptized weekly, are you? No, you are baptized once at the beginning of the Christian life, but it is the Lord's Supper that we come to repeatedly. Um, I've also heard it said that baptism is kind of like uh, the, the the wedding ceremony, whereas the Lord's Supper might be compared to a kind of anniversary celebration. I've never met a couple who starts celebrating their anniversary, their marriage wedding anniversary, um, before the wedding day, right? Uh, that would be absurd and ridiculous. First you get married, and then you celebrate the wedding anniversary and in the same way why would we uh observe the supper in an out of order sort of way mm-hmm. you know beginning with that and then moving on to baptism and so i think it is good for us to say uh, if, if you're believing upon christ then let's first things first let's work towards baptism and then you can continue on partaking of the supper yeah yeah what about the
0: part that says we must be a member in good standing What does that mean exactly?
1: Well, first of all, it's an invitation to the members of Emmaus. Come and partake. And then the little remark here, in good standing, I think, does remind that there is such thing as church discipline. Mm -hmm. Uh, So there's an implication here that it is possible to be a member not in good standing, right? A member who is under discipline. Um, Again, may it never be, uh, but that is a possibility. And so I think it's a reminder of that. Um, Notice we also do indicate that those visiting from another like-minded congregation are welcome uh, to partake. And this is so important, I think. What if we did say the Lord's Supper is only for members of Emmaus Christian Fellowship? There are some churches, by the way, that, that approach it like this. And they may have good reasons for doing so. I don't really understand it because I think... The impression it gives this is my opinion, and if I'm offending some brothers and sisters in Christ, I, you know, I, I don't intend to, but this is just my opinion as, as a pastor. If you, When you say that the Lord's Supper is only for the members of this church, it gives the impression that um, there's something unique and special about your church, maybe as opposed to other churches who are not quite like yours, but who are... Uh, we would say, like-minded, you know. Um, I would imagine that most who have this standard that the Lord's Supper is only for members of the church, they're probably well-intended. Again, they're, they're concerned to err on the side of being very much involved with people pastorally and emphasizing the the, the importance of membership in a low congregation. I, I get that, but I think it, it it tends to send a message to those who are observing that Oh, because I'm not a part of your church, I can't come to the Lord's table. Right? Yeah. And so the Lord's Supper, it's true, it's to be observed within the context of the local church, right? But there is also this element to it that it's the universal church that ultimately partakes. You know, So so here we are at Emmaus partaking of the Lord's Supper on a Sunday morning. And, and and it's neat to think about that. All over the valley, there are other brothers and sisters in Christ who are also partaking of the Lord's Supper in their local context. You know, And if one of them should come to us on a Sunday morning and they are a legitimate part of another church, maybe that church has formal membership. Maybe it doesn't. It's another issue. Um, to me, it is good to say – Yes, brother, yes, sister, come to the table with us if indeed you meet these very simple biblical qualifications. Yeah. Can you explain a little bit more what um, what would define like-minded? It's kind of subjective, isn't it? And I acknowledge that. What does it mean to be a like-minded church? Well, certainly if someone is uh, visiting us from... Uh, one of the churches in the Southern Baptist, or the, the um, Southern California Association of Reformed Baptist Churches, they're like-minded, yeah. right? Uh, <laughs> it's as like-minded as we can get. I, I think so. <laughs> Why did you ask me that question, Mike? You're making this difficult on me. <laughs> what does it mean to be like-minded? Um, there, there are some very core and fundamental issues. Do you believe that salvation is through faith in Christ alone? Right? Do you believe in the triune God? Uh, do you believe that the Word of God is uh, without error, that it is inspired and authoritative for life? Do you believe that Jesus Christ is the God-man who, uh, though he existed as the eternal Son of God uh, before creation and was with the Father, he came in due time in the form of man to, to atone for the sins of all who would uh, believe? The, the, you know, Those are the, yeah, the, the core issues yeah, of the yeah, Christian yeah, faith. Definitely. Is, is definitely what we're getting at here. Yeah. Um
0: but I, I, th- I think it is
1: good. For, I, I think it is good for us to be open to say, we are brothers and sisters, in here in this local fellowship. But, but by no means are we saying we're the only true church. Yeah, exactly. You know, we're exactly. acknowledging that we are the local church, which is one local uh, manifestation of Christ's universal universal right. church.
0: And that that's huge. As we um, just thinking in, through culture, we we talk, You know, Kinsa did this earlier in this episode you know our, our culture tends to be very individualistic the the christian faith is extremely individualistic and um you know we have our our relationship between christ and ourselves and that's what it's about and in instead of this more corporate uh especially when 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 partaking of the lord's supper how how that is a corporate event it's a something we're to do together in community um so that that's important to, to think through that, that we're part of a larger, larger whole than just ourselves. Right. So that's
1: good. Yeah. And we confess that together. Um, yeah. Even yeah. In, in the, the, the Nicene Creed, we talk about believing in the, the Holy uh, Catholic church, right? And then we have to define what Catholic right. means. <laughs> it's not that we believe in the Roman Catholic church. It's so that we believe in the, the universal right. church, uh, right. that the broader body of Christ that exists. Um, in all the world, you know, that, that is comprised of all of the elect. That's good. Yeah.
0: And the next part you, you kind of touched on earlier. So if you want to add something, but for the, the newer part of the statement, you know, if you're new to Emmaus, but not a member, you're also invited to partake. Um, We look forward to getting to know you in the weeks to come. So I'm not sure if you want to add anything more to that, but.
1: Yeah, no, this is where we've landed. We do want to start with the green light but we do hope that you hear the emphasis here that we really want to get to know you. Also, it is implied that at some point you will pursue membership. Oh yeah, in the yeah. local church. Um, that might be a conversation we need to have. Why do we? Why do we think membership is important? Does that go beyond the scriptures? You know that that sort. Of, mm-hmm. No, it's that we we see clear uh, uh, biblical warrant for. Uh, the pastor is having the responsibility of receiving people into the congregation in a way that is healthy. You know, So it's implied there that in due time, it may be within a month, it may be three, it may be a year. It's different for different people, and that's fine. But it's implied from the outset that you may be new to Emmaus, but not yet a member. Uh, we invite you to partake, but our hope is to get to know you and to work towards uh, membership. I think what you'll notice here, though, is these three things have been mentioned, that you're either a member in good standing Visiting from another like-minded congregation, or new to Emmaus but not yet a member, Um, those are three categories of people who have been mentioned here. There's probably a fourth category of 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 professing Christian that needs to be addressed. They are those who call themselves Christians but don't fit into any of those three. Uh, They are neither a member of Emmaus nor are they a member of another congregation nor are they new to Emmaus, you know, and yet serious about staying and being regularly involved in the church, but they are what we would call those uh, Christmas and and Easter types of Christians in our culture. I think it's a cultural form of Christianity. I would actually discourage people who are in that fourth category, the the Christmas-Easter crowd, from partaking. And the reason for it is because here you are professing Christ, but yet, to put it very bluntly, and I know this sounds blunt, you're living in sin. Uh, You're living in sin when you call yourself a Christian, and yet you refuse to associate with Christ's church. The church is the bride of Christ. The church is a thing that Christ has purchased with his blood. It is a thing that he loves supremely, so much so that he would lay his life down for her. And yet you have this attitude towards it, which is to say, I don't like it. I want nothing to do with it. Uh, it is popular for some to say, "I love Jesus, but I hate the church." Yeah, yeah. How can you claim to love Jesus and yet also say that you hate the thing that He loves most—that He laid His life down for, that He shed His blood for? And so, I get it. Some people have been terribly wounded, you know, in the past by churches. There's reasons as to why they're hesitant to connect themselves to a body. There's maybe theological misunderstanding. There's so many things. I I get it. We need to be willing to come alongside people who are in that situation and walk with them. But let's do that. Let's address the issue instead of showing up once every three months or six or once every year and saying, yeah, everything's cool between me and God, and right, I'll partake of the Lord's Supper, no problem with that, though you're, you're living in this perpetual state of not being a part of... Uh, the body of Christ, the body of Christ, yeah. And the last
0: part does a great job of summarizing everything. Um, Our concern is that it is those who have faith in Jesus who are living in a way consistent with the faith who partake.
1: That would be a summary statement. If you wanted to know how we fence the table, I guess if if it needed to be in one sentence, I would just say that. That's our concern. Those who have faith in Jesus who are living in a way consistent with the faith, it's those that we invite to partake. So that kind of sums up everything that has been said. I guess um, some might say, then, why do you need to say all the other things specifically? Why do you need to talk about uh, the requirement of, of baptism um, or being all those other three things mentioned, just a, a part of a local congregation? Why do you need to say those things? Well, because people don't think of those things. Right. That's just the truth of the matter. Um, you know, They don't think of the need to be baptized. They don't think of the importance of belonging to a local congregation. Um, and so I think they need to be spelled out more carefully in our culture today. That's why
0: yeah. Yeah. Well, some may say that this uh, could tend towards legalism, and what would you say to that?
1: I think we really need to define what legalism is, you know I, that that charge is thrown out all the time, and I think it's thrown out oftentimes by people who grew up in a particular church culture that is the opposite of legalistic. Uh, we might call it an antinomian church culture. Uh, antinomian meaning a church culture that just has no law whatsoever. No, right? Um, if you grew up in a in a church culture that is very loose and casual, and dare I say, even irreverent, you know, and you come into a church culture where there is more structure, it is, you know, tempting. I think to look at that and to say, well, this is legalistic. At least I feel that it is. You know, it feels legalistic to me because there's structure here. There, there's reverence. There's a real intentional way about doing church. But um, legalism, properly defined, can be one of two things. A legalist is one who has it in their mind and heart that they can actually earn right standing before God, salvation through the keeping of God's law. That is one form of legalism. Um, Another form, and I think this is oftentimes what people are getting at, legalism is also when we uh, take God's laws, and it's true. We don't think we could be saved by them, but, but there they are. We take God's law, and then we add to it, requirement. We, we put a fence around the fence. Yeah, we put a fence around the fence. That's it. <laughs> uh, that, that's well stated here, and it builds upon uh, the earlier conversation, right? That That's legalism. And so, for example— to stay kind of on topic here, we started to use wine in the observation of the Lord's supper. Uh, whereas before we only used grape juice and I tried to make the point, listen, I'm not saying communion or the Lord's supper doesn't work with grape juice. The symbolism is still there. It's a, it's a red drink and the, the blood of Christ is effectively symbolized with the fruit of the vine, uh, fermented or unfermented. I'm not saying that churches that use grape juice, uh, don't benefit from the Lord's Supper. I think we benefited from the Lord's Supper all these years in using just grape juice. Why, why did we move away from that back to the use of wine? Well, it's upon examining the question, why would the church ever abandon the use of wine and go to grape juice? Uh, it, it's, it's upon examining that question that you begin to realize that there are legalistic tendencies there. What do the scriptures forbid concerning alcohol? Drunkenness. Right? That's what the scriptures forbid. And yet in certain traditions, the thing that is forbidden is alcohol, period. Right. Now that is taking the law of God, be not drunk with wine, but be filled with the Holy Spirit, and it's adding a law to it. Do not touch alcohol ever under any circumstances. Right. Well, it's strange then because Paul told Timothy to take a little wine for his stomach. The church at Corinth was – Getting drunk during the Lord's Supper, Paul did not say stop using alcohol, use something else. He just rebuked them for what their violation of the law of God. Right. So that is legalism. It is taking God's law and adding um, adding laws to it, hmm. so that you build a fence around the fence around the fence. Right. You know,
0: and the and, reason it's we can't do that is because we're we're missing the heart of the matter, right? Right. If we
1: don't address the the actual issue. I think legalists of this kind that I've just described usually are well-intended. They want people to live holy before God. They're concerned that they not fall into some sin. Yeah, Uh, for sure. I think some who have moved away from the use of wine in the supper, maybe they grew up in a household where alcoholism was a horrible thing, and they're sensitive to that, and they don't want others to be... I I get all that. I think the intentions are, are good, but there are unintended consequences, right? Yeah. Um. There are unintended consequences to where that legalistic spirit can so quickly take a hold of a, con- a congregation, and it is it's destructive. I, I would argue that legalism can be more destructive than you know the, the, the temptations towards alcoholism. you know And so we've got to be careful here. I, what I would say is that if all of this talk about fencing the table sounds legalistic to you. You need to observe what we have written, and you need to demonstrate where it is that we have gone beyond the Scriptures. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not enough that it feels legalistic to you. You need to demonstrate where it is that we have gone beyond the Scriptures. Yeah, yeah. Well, you're only allowing believers to partake. Well, yeah. That's who the Supper is for. <laughs> it's for followers of Jesus well you're demanding baptism well yeah go therefore and make disciples of all nations baptizing them in the name of the father son and the holy spirit right it's it's at the beginning of, of, of it marks entrance uh, yeah but you're saying they have to be members of your church or visiting from another or new to the church and uh, with the intention of or the the the, the um potential of, of kind of hanging out you know not just popping in for one sunday out of the year or well yeah because that's how Christ has ordered His church, right, um, that His people are to gather together and to not forsake the assembling of themselves together. Right. Uh, it, it it is the local church that is His body and his body universally is comprised of many local churches where there are pastors and elders meeting together and working with and serving members and so on and so forth. Having appropriate um, respect and, uh, for the for Lord's table, too. Right. Um, and so you know, it, I think it all kind of comes back to uh, asking the question, what does the Lord's Supper symbolize? Yeah. Our union with Christ, our continuing in him, feasting upon him, he is our daily bread kind of mentality, and our union with one another. And our union with one another.
0: And again, the heart of this—the heart of this—is bringing us to the beauty of what that is, right? You know, and, and how that how that benefits us in our walk with Christ. So, yeah. Well, how does this issue? Because it is
1: how is this issue connected with other ministry issues? This is something I've been thinking a lot about. Um, that just think about this with me for a minute. The way a church goes about observing the Lord's Supper, is usually a direct manifestation of the way that they view church in general and their overall philosophy of ministry. And what I mean by that is if, if, if a church neglects the supper, pushes it to the side, approaches it incredibly casually, never fences the table, then that is going to be a visible um, a visible and observable manifestation. I keep using that term. I'm trying to find another word here, but it, it's going to represent or display their heart, their mind concerning the church in general, mm. you know and uh, the, the seriousness with, with with which they approach church in general. So to illustrate this principle, I was talking with someone I know the other day who was visiting a church down in Orange County. And they were telling me about it, and they are like, you know, it was kind of weird the way they observed the supper. They just had tables off to the side of the auditorium, and there were the elements, and there was a little sign there that said, um, you know, if you feel the need to partake of the Lord's Supper, then then go ahead. I mean, it wasn't worded that way, but that's what was communicated. You know, help yourself. <laughs> and this church was—, was one of these very large, um, what we might call seeker-friendly uh, megachurches, it, it just it was that culture, you know, and we're, we're stereotyping here, right? But uh, I, I would consider this church a church where there's not much involvement from the pastors. It's not much expositional preaching coming at the folks as much as it is kind of topical, um, you know, situational uh, life application sort of preaching um it's a very casual individualistic sort of come in and go out uh, church culture and it's no wonder then that they take the lord's supper and just literally push it to the side and teach and approach as if it's just a a tangent you know, it's about you as an individual kind of doing what's best for you. It's just between you and the Lord. There's really not that corporate partaking, that, that element to it. Uh, there's really no oversight from the pastors because the pastors aren't involved. They can't be involved, you know, in a, in, a, in a church of that size and so on and so forth. Now, I think it also corresponds to those churches that where, where the pastors are very much involved in the people, where there are where there is teaching taking place, where there's authentic life to life fellowship going on, you know, it's no wonder then that in those churches they tend more towards a reverent and serious um, approach to the table, right? Um, did that make sense? What I just said? I felt yeah. like I stammered through it pretty horribly. No. Um, and so I think for us, honestly, um, five years. You know, we're coming up on our five-year anniversary. We were for a long time taking the Lord's Supper monthly. I think it was just natural for us to question that, to observe the scriptures, to study church history. But but it was kind of natural for us also just to say, you know what, Every, everything that we're doing here at Emmaus is is geared towards you know, pastoral involvement, teaching, life-to-life relationships, a, a high level of, of community, right, a, a, a high emphasis upon authentic fellowship and communion bond. No wonder then that over time we're drawn to weekly observance and also to more of a reverent and serious approach to, to the Lord's Supper. Right. It's just an observation. I don't know if it plays out perfectly in every circumstance, but there seems to be a connection to me. Between yeah. the way a church approaches the supper and their overall view of the church and um, philosophy or, or approach to ministry. Well, they
0: all go together. They really do. Well, I hope that we hope that brings some clarity to the issue. And um, again, if you have questions at all about any of this, um, please send us an email. Talk to us at, at church on Sunday. Um, we'd love to talk about it. So, I mean, it's it's been an exciting helpful move i think for us as a church and um, again the heart of this is to to bring bring us back to what what this is meant to be well thanks for listening to this episode of confessing the faith and until next time abide in christ